Hi, this is Kim, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. My first recollection about learning um, about World War II was from my dad. And as little girls, he would take us um, to World War II movies. And the second recollection is hearing him talking about kamikaze pilots in World War II. And I started this project trying to learn more about my dad's war experiences. He was Donald Skeen, and when he was 18, he was drafted in June of 1943. He chose the Navy, and after training, was assigned to the USS Hawking, which was an APA-121 attack transport, which was 450 feet long. She was commissioned on October 22, 1944, which was shortly after Dad finished his training at Farragut and was assigned to the Asian Pacific Theater. She participated in two Pacific War campaigns, both Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Her first assignment was conducting training exercises off of the coast of California and then departing for Pearl Harbor on December 4th, 1944. And I also have a memory of Dad telling me about their departure and how homesick he was when they sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge. She was assigned as part of the 5th Marines, And after her arrival at Pearl, she embarked and took part in amphibious exercises and rehearsals prior to the invasion of Iwo Jima, but as we'll find out, they were not sure where they were even going. The Hawking was one of the 450 ships that were assigned to Iwo Jima, and after her Marines disembarked and unloaded her equipment, she anchored offshore where she could receive casualties. She departed on 27th of February for Saipan with the wounded. And that's basically all I could find out from researching online. But there is another connection that I found in today's story. There is a ton of information about the land battle, but there's not as much as what was happening with all the ships in the harbor. Last week, we talked about two Marines that were killed at Ewell. And today's story is about two sailors that were from Weber County. In 1944, Japanese naval captain Motoharu Okamura declared, I firmly believe the only way to swing the war in our favor is to crash dive attacks with our planes. There will be more than enough volunteers who want a chance to save our country. And that was the beginning of the kamikaze program. For the raids, they used both conventional aircraft and also specially designed planes called okas or cherry blossoms by the Japanese. It was a rocket-powered plane that carried toward its target in the belly of a bomber. The first kamikaze force was comprised of 24 volunteers from Japanese 201st Navy Air Group. The targets were U.S. carriers in the battle for Leyte in the Philippines. They were able to sink the St. Lowe. It sank in less than an hour, killing 100 Americans and taking down 34 other ships. Overall, through the 1944 and 1945 attacks, more than 3,000 Japanese pilots were killed, and there were more than 7,000 casualties among the Allies. In February of 1945, they headed for the battle at Iwo Jima. The task force had 32 planes, and early in the morning of February 21st, just two days after the land battle started, they departed from the Katori Naval Base in Japan. The Bismarck Sea was an aircraft carrier that was named for the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. She had been completed in May of 1944 and had served in the Philippines and in the landings on Iwo. 
She was 512 feet long with a 257-foot hangar deck and a 477-foot flight deck. Her compact size necessitated the installation of an aircraft catapult at her bow, and I have no idea how that works. And she also had two elevators to facilitate moving the planes off of the flight deck. One was on the fore and the other on the aft. So on February 21st, she was performing routine air support. She was approximately 21 miles east of Iwo. At 17.30, the aircraft on the carrier were scrambled to deal with incoming planes, but they turned out to be friendly. So after recovering them, she also took on three other planes who were unable to land on their carriers. And due to the lack of deck space, she moved four of her fighters below deck without emptying the fuel tanks. And that decision would be disastrous. So she actually had 327 planes on board. She had 19 MF-2 fighters, 15 TBM torpedo bombers, two recon aircraft, and an F-6 Hellcat. Despite the heavy American defensive gunfire, two Japanese kamikazes hit her, first on the starboard side under the first 40mm gun, crashing through the hangar deck and striking the ship's magazines. The fire was nearly under control when a second plane struck on her aft elevator shaft. It exploded on impact and further damaged the saltwater fire distribution system shortly after the order was given to abandon ship. She sank with the loss of 318 men and was the last U.S. Navy aircraft carrier to be lost during World War II. Three destroyers and three destroyer escorts rescued the survivors over the next 12 hours, saving a total of 605 officers and men from her crew of 923. One of those last was a Weber County boy from Hooper. Hooper is west of Ogden and borders the Great Salt Lake. Vernon Fowers was born on November 17, 1923, the son of Harold and Cora Christensen Fowers. His dad was a farmer. He had two older brothers. N. Emerson and Wiley A., and a younger brother, Lyle C. He graduated from Weber County High School in 1942. Go Warriors! He was inducted into the service on January 11, 1944, at Fort Douglas, Utah, and chose the Navy. He married Cleon Jones of Canesville, the small community east of Hipper, on March 10, 1944, and Canesville now makes up a part of West Haven, Utah. The first time he's mentioned in the newspaper is April 6th of 1945. Services pay honor to sailor memory. Memorial services for Seaman First Class Vernon L. Fowers will be held on Sunday, April 8th at 4 p.m. in the Hooper LDS War Chapel. He was previously reported missing and is now reported as killed as a result of enemy action on February 21st, 1945. Seaman Fowers, husband of Cleone John Fowers, and son of Mr. and Mrs. Harold Fowers, was born on November 17, 1923 in Hooper. He attended Hooper School and graduated from Weber County High School and LDS Seminary. He took an active part in church work. He enlisted in the Navy on January 17, 1944. He trained at Farragut, Idaho, Bremerton, Washington, and Astoria, Oregon. For seven months, he has been on active duty in the Marshall Islands, Leyte, Luzon, and the China Sea aboard the USS Bismarck Sea, reportedly sunk off Iwo Jima. Before enlisting, he was engaged in farming. 
He was married on March 10, 1944, to Cleone Jones, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. T.R. Jones of Canesville. Surviving besides his widow and parents are three brothers, H. Emerson Wiley A. and Lyle C. Fowers Olive Pupper. The family requests no flowers. His body was never recovered, but he has a headstone in the Hooper Cemetery. He's also commemorated on the U.S. National Cemetery of the Pacific in Punchbowl in Hawaii, and his name is on this place of remembrance in the Ogden City Cemetery. In addition, we have another sailor to talk about, and this is kind of a different story. Pharmacist mate, second class George Wallen of Weber County, received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his heroic actions on Iwo. And there's a book about George written by Gary W. Toyne called The Quiet Hero. The foreword is written by Senator Bob Dole and the introduction by Senator Orrin Hatch. George was born on August 8, 1924 to Albert and Doris Wallen. And during the Depression years, the family lived in a small house behind Doris's mother on 2860 Grant in Ogden. And then right after his birth, they moved to a farm in Fairmont. And the city is no longer there, but it's where the Ogden Airport is located. In 1941, when George was a senior at Weber High School, he talked his dad into letting him quit school and enroll in an aircraft mechanics course at Utah State Agricultural College in Logan. And Logan is about 50 miles north of Ogden. On the Sunday before school started, George was in Logan looking for a room to rent. His mind was so focused that he was unaware of what was going on around him, and school was scheduled to start on December 8, 1941. When he got to school, he found the students and the faculty huddled around the radio, listening to President Roosevelt's call for a declaration of war against Japan. And after only a few months of school, a recruiter from the Army Air Corps offered George a sergeant's rating upon completion of his schooling. Since he was only 17, he had to take the enlistment papers home for his father to sign, but his dad refused telling him that he had not let him quit school to join the Army. After six months, he graduated and was immediately hired at Hillfield, which is just south of Ogden, as part of a flight test section that assessed each plane's worthiness. After eight months on the job, he was promoted to crew chief and became responsible for five other mechanics at only the age of 18. Eventually, he was drafted, and he was confident that his skills at Hillfield would result in a higher rank in the Air Corps. However, his hopes were dashed when he was told that there were no vacancies. The recruiter told him that the Navy also had a fleet of planes, and so he walked down to the Navy office, explaining all his experience in mechanics and leaderships. But this was an induction office, and the recruiter had no authority to do anything but sign him up. So he signed up for the Navy. On June 18, 1943, he left for the Naval Training Station in San Diego to complete boot camp. After he graduated, he was shocked to learn that instead of going to aircraft mechanic school, as he had anticipated, he was being signed to the hospital course school. He was assigned to work in a medical ward at the Naval Hospital in Balboa Park, where he cleaned bedpans, scrubbed floors, and took orders from women. He was frustrated and hated every minute of it. He learned that if he could pass an examination, he would be promoted and at the very least receive an increase in pay. He asked the others why they hadn't taken the test, and they told him it could result in him being sent to sea, or worse yet, being assigned to a marine combat unit. 
Within weeks, he passed the test and got more money for doing the same job. The next month, he passed another test and was promoted to pharmacist's mate third class, and working in the ward gave him the opportunity to speak with some wounded Marines. He asked them what it was like for Navy corpsmen assigned to the Marines, and he learned that he would train right alongside the Marines, and the corpsmen were very respected and admired for the jobs that they had to do. And so he volunteered and joined the Marines. He was assigned to the 5th Marine Division at Camp Pendleton on December 1st, 1943, and on January 21st, 1944, the unit was activated. The training was brutal. He was assigned to Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 26th Marine Regiment. He had been sent for three months of failed medical corpsman training, and when he returned, he was expected to keep up with his company that often required treating their blisters after a march. After they had trained in conditioning and weapon proficiency, they would crawl over simulated battlefields with bullets over their head in live ammunition. Everyone knew their roles in and out, and they started training for an amphibious landing. In the spring of 1944, George got a furlough to see his family in Ogden. By mid-June, the 26th Regiment had practiced amphibious assaults on the beaches of Camp Pendleton. On July 12th of 1944, the regiment was put on alert status, but no information was provided about their target. Families from all over the United States traveled to San Diego in hopes of seeing their loved one before they were deployed. They all helped to pack their unit's equipment and prepare for transfer overseas. The men were instructed to leave all non-essential personal items in a separate sea bag or box them up and send them home. There were a mountain of sea bags stored in their warehouses waiting for the 26th return, but a good number would never be retrieved by their owners. The regiment was sent to Hawaii for more training and arrived at Hilo, Hawaii just after Christmas to be assigned to a troop transport. And this is where my two stories converge. He was assigned to the USS Hawking, my dad's ship. So 18-year-old George Wallen and 18-year-old Don Skeen, two boys from Weber County, are on the same ship along with hundreds of others, Marines and sailors. They boarded on January 4th of 1945, and as the distance grew between Hawking and Pearl Harbor, they still didn't know their target. On January 29th, Fox Company was ordered on deck for a briefing, and Lieutenant Colonel Joseph P. Sayers announced their destination. They were going to Iwo Jima. They were trained in their unit's responsibilities, but also the goals and objectives of each regiment and division. As the voyage continued, the days seemed to blur together. During the long nights, they found amusing ways to keep themselves entertained. Besides the routine calisthenics and weapon inspection, they were treated to band concerts or amateur shows. They had to wait in line for over an hour for the mess to open. They watched flying fish and porpoises swimming in their wake. And they arrived in Saipan for more training, not knowing exactly when they would go to Iwo Jima. That day would come on February 19, 1945, with the arrest of the attack force. The book tells in detail what happened day by day, but I'm going to jump forward to D-Day plus 7, which would be February 26th. Just before 1000 hours, Fox Company was ordered to replace Easy Company, who had been on the front line for several days. There were so many Marines on the field, it was hard to stay with his company, but George always made sure he stayed close to his platoon. 
As Fox Company made their way up the hill to the target, he turned around and saw up to 15 wounded Marines scattered in the flat open area, still being slammed with mortar fire. Even though the noise of the battle was deafening, he could hear their screams of pain mixed with their calls for a corpsman. Without hesitating, he crawled on his hands and knees back into the line of fire and began to treat the wounded Marines. He crawled to the closest and dragged him back into a shell hole. He could see blood coming from a puncture wound on his thigh. He quickly treated him and crawled on his stomach to the next Marine. With so many wounded, George focused first on those with the most critical injuries. Some Marines were missing limbs and others had shrapnel wounds. He put a tourniquet on a man with a missing leg and tightened it to slow the bleeding. He crawled to a third man with a shrapnel wound. After completing each task, he went on to the next, still in the middle of Japanese fire. After treating his sixth or seventh casualty, he came upon a friend, Eddie Manjara, who was also a corpsman in his platoon. He had been hit badly in the chest and stomach and had lost a lot of blood. George quickly treated him, pressing bandages on the muscle and tissue that were outside of his wound. He gave him one of his last shots of morphine. He wanted to stay with him and make sure the stretcher bearers picked him up as soon as possible, but he could still hear the calls for Corman. At the end of 20 minutes, when he was treating his 14th and final casualty, he saw the stretcher bearers load Eddie onto a stretcher, and he helped two more bearers roll his last wounded Marine onto a stretcher to depart. He crawled back to safety and rejoined his platoon. The men in his unit were shaking their heads in astonishment of his amazing act of courage. No one could explain how or why he had survived the intense mortar barrage for 20 minutes without getting hit, and his friend Eddie didn't make it. But the day wasn't over yet. Fox Company continued to move up toward their objective when they came under heavy machine gun fire. George, climbing back down, noticed two Marines in the dirt. He crawled over to them, but immediately saw that both had been killed. Continuing to find his platoon, he heard a thud next to his face. And before he could react, a grenade exploded a foot or so in front of him, and the concussion hit him full on in the face. Fortunately, the soft sand took most of the blast, and most fragments flew above his head. But he did catch shrapnel in his face, just missing his right eye. He struggled to regain full consciousness. Unable to move, he just laid there and hoped he wouldn't be hit again. After a few minutes, he decided what he needed to do. His right eye was blinded, and his face was bleeding from puncture wounds. He pulled out his battle dressing, wrapping it around his head and covering his right eye, and began sliding down, looking again for Fox Company. Understanding the danger he was in, he tried to slide faster when he heard the call for a corpsman. He could see a wounded Marine lying about 30 yards away. As he crawled in his direction, another grenade landed near the Marine, and then more. He stopped crawling to assess the situation. It was then he saw a Japanese soldier emerge, throwing a fourth grenade from a cave on the hill. Knowing he only had his forty-five pistol, he yelled down to two other Marines in his platoon to throw him a grenade. He continued to crawl up as grenades exploded around him. He found the opening of the cave that the Japanese soldier was coming out of. The soldier would come out, throw a grenade, and then jump back into the cave. So George waited, and as soon as he saw the soldier exit, he threw the grenade. It was a direct hit and killed him. George then proceeded to drag the 200-pound Marine back to where he could take a look at his wounds. 
He bandaged him as quickly as he could, but there were no stretcher bearers in sight. Frustrated that he couldn't move him by himself, George stayed with him for several minutes until a stretcher bearer crawled up the hill to them. The two of them were able to roll the Marine onto the stretcher, and the stretcher bearer dragged the Marine back down the hill to safety, and George crawled to another position where he met another corpsman. They had just made their way out of the ravine, and there was another call for help. The two men worked for over an hour until they were exhausted and out of supplies. Being the superior officer, George asked the second corpsman to go down and get supplies, and he refused. So George made his way down the hill to the command post. He was greeted by his commanding officer, Captain Caldwell, who asked, Well, Doc, how's the fighting going up there? George was frustrated and tired, and forgetting he was talking to his superior, yelled, Well, why don't you go up there and see for yourself? Captain Caldwell just smiled, looking at George, who was covered in blood from lifting wounded men and had a swollen face that was bandaged and bloody. Doc, you look pretty beat up. Get yourself back down to the aid station. But George, fearing that he would be evacuated, says, I'm not leaving. I just came back for supplies. He grabbed several bandages and dressings, and stepping him back in his bag, he returned to his unit. The brutal fighting that had taken place on this day moved the Marines 300 yards. The attack had resulted in the destruction of enemy positions, including reinforced pillboxes, machine gun nests, and several mortar positions. They had cut off the Japanese supply lines for food, water, and weapons. But the price had been high. Fox Company suffered its worst day yet. By nightfall, George had treated more than 20 of the 49 casualties that day, and 18 of the men were killed in action. Of the 250 men who had landed on the island, Fox Company had lost more than one-third of its force. So after I read this, I thought, wow, you know, that's why he received his Congressional Medal of Honor. Nope, not so. The crazy thing is they were relieved and went back down to the command post where he was able to change his bandage and eat. But Fox Company was set right back in again. By midnight on March 1st, their um, objective, Hill 362A, had been secured. Unofficially, they had suffered 96 casualties. Of the men who originally landed on February 19th, 27 had been killed immediately or later died from wounds. For the division, an even thousand men had been killed and 3,000 were wounded or missing. Within their area of responsibility, the Americans could account for 3,252 dead Japanese and just 12 prisoners. So on D-Day plus 12, March 3rd, 1945, Fox Company was sent to the front again. They were able to gain ground very quickly despite the constant barrage from the Japanese. George again struggled to keep up with his platoon, constantly moving from one wounded man to another and waiting for stretcher bearers. In the book The Quiet Hero, Gary Twain says, Historically, Fox Company was engaged in one of the most, if if not the most, fiercely contested battles of the entire Iwo Jima campaign. It was, without exception, the most successful and deadliest of the battle. Mortars rained down on George's first platoon and the casualties mounted. At approximately 1,600 hours, a sergeant asked George to go up a hill and to find another wounded Marine. George crawled up but couldn't find him and called to the Marines below to ask if they could see the man. Suddenly, there was a deafening explosion of a large shell that landed on top of the Marines George had been talking to. He could hear them screaming. When he got to them, he found one Marine's leg was completely severed. Another had lost both legs. 
the last man had been blown clear and was dead. As George stepped on his right leg to get up, he looked down and saw that the inside section of his boot was blown off, leaving his foot and lower leg bleeding. He reached down and found the bone was broken above his ankle. He was bleeding, but it was not life-threatening. Still determined to do his job, he crawled into the hole, pushing his leg with his hand. He started with the most seriously wounded Marine, wrapping a tourniquet around each leg. Two more corpsmen had joined him in the hole and were working on the others. He pulled out a battle dressing, opened a package of sulfanamide, and sprinkled it on his bloody foot. He tied a dressing tightly over it, and fearing he would go into shock, he took a vial of morphine and stuck it in his arm. As the stretcher bearers removed the wounded, they told him to stay put, and they would return for him. But again, he heard the cry for a corpsman up the hill. Knowing that there was no one else, he started to crawl up the hill to the wounded man. He thought he was fairly close, but it turned out he was almost 50 yards away. He dragged himself with his leg across the rock terrain, still being fired on by the hidden Japanese. When he reached the Marine, he could see that both of the men's legs were broken and bleeding. He quickly took out two battle dressings and tied them firmly on the open wounds and gave the man a shot of morphine. With both of them needing treatment, they realized their chances to be evacuated would improve if they could get closer to a corpsman and further away from the bullets. They crawled toward a large shell hole down the hill. With the morphine working, they crawled several yards before stopping to rest. They continued their way down under fire until they finally reached the safety of a large shell hole. They waited for almost an hour before stretcher bearers could make it to their position. Even on the way down, they were all under sniper fire, and the stretcher bearers had to drop him once to retreat. He rolled over and reached for his forty-five pistol and began crawling toward the firing. Two other Marines opened fire on the Japanese, and the stretcher bearers pulled him back and started back down the hill. He waited for over an hour before being loaded on a truck to go to the field hospital several miles away. The driver, having made the trip many times, had learned to drive to avoid snipers. George sat up trying to hold his leg steady through all the bumps and jolts. And going back to the book, it's at the hospital. The driver finally slowed down and pulled up next to a tent. George was shocked by the horrible scene. He saw the dead Marines lined up in a row, draped in green camouflage ponchos. Outside of the tent, a sea of wounded men lay on stretchers, waiting anxiously to be seen by a battalion surgeon. Several Marines came out to lift him and the other Marine off the truck and was told he would have to wait several hours before being seen by the surgeon. As he rested on his cot, he began to review the events of the day. He couldn't remember how many men he had treated, but he suspected it was the worst day of the campaign. In fact, of the original 250 men in Fox Company, only 82 remained, and just on this lone day they had suffered 49 casualties, 19 had died, and another 30 were evacuated. His time on Iwo Jima was over, but the rest of the division would take another 23 days of relentless fighting before the island was finally captured. The next morning, he was moved to a Higgins boat and moved to a transport ship. And going back to my dad, this answered another question for me. The Hawking and other APAs that were used to transport Marines were used to take wounded men to the hospitals in Guam and Saipan. Because of the amount of casualties, there was no room on the hospital ships, and so the U.S. Hockey had departed on February 27th with her wounded. George was treated in the military hospital on Guam, 
and sent to the Naval Hospital at Pearl Harbor for rehab, but his leg was not healing as they expected. He was flown to the Naval Hospital in Oakland, where after complaining for several days of more pain, he demanded to see a doctor. As the cast was removed, they found the blood flow to his lower leg was cut off and the tissue was black. They took him back into surgery where they were able to restore the blood flow. He was really grateful that not only did the pain go away, but he did not require an amputation. He was moved again to the U.S. Naval Hospital at Cap Pendleton in April. And while he was recuperating, he took up cutting hair, which explains a lot because when they were writing about him in his medal, they said he was a barber, which I didn't understand at first. The first week of August, he was granted convalescent leave and came home to Ogden and was reunited with his family and friends. He was at home on August 6, 1945, when the atomic bomb that would lead to the end of the war was dropped on Hiroshima. When the Japanese did not surrender on August 9th, a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And he was still in Utah when VJ Day was celebrated. He returned to the Naval Hospital and joined in the celebrations there. In early September of 1945, George was called into the hospital's commander's office. As he walked into the room, several officers and NCOs were there to greet him. He was sent to learn that it was a medal ceremony honoring him. He was given the Navy Cross with a gold star in lieu of a second Navy Cross. The Navy Cross is the second highest honor given for heroism in battle. This was the second Navy Cross that was received by a Weber County serviceman. The first was to Claude Becker, seaman first class, for his heroics on the ship, the USS Marblehead. George's leg was not healing, and the Navy doctors told him he would need a third operation. And that surgery was finally successful in forcing the blood to circulate. After months of rehab again, he was feeling less pain and was given a walking cast. In late September, he received a telegram notifying him that he was being ordered to report to the Naval Barracks in Washington, D.C. at 8.30 on October 3rd, 1945. He thought that having two Navy crosses, he was being pressed into duty for the mighty seven war bond drive. He arrived early in D.C. and spent a couple of days sightseeing. When he finally reported for duty... He was immediately accosted by a naval officer who demanded, We have been looking all over for you. Where have you been? Puzzled, George took out his orders. The officer, still upset, said, Don't you know why you're here? George, even more puzzled, said, I'm not sure. Dumbfounded, the officer stared at George and said, On Friday, you have an appointment at the White House. You are going to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. George was speechless and replied, no kidding. October 5th, 1945 was Nimitz Day in Washington, D.C. George was one of 14 men to receive the Medal of Honor that day, 11 Marines and two others from the Navy. When he arrived at the White House, he was terrified to see all the dignitaries and officers. He had rarely interacted with anyone about the rank of captain. The onlookers included Generals George Marshall, George Patton, Hap Arnold, Admiral Nimitz, and the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. As President Truman shook his hand, he whispered in his ear, It's mighty good to see a pill pusher in the middle of all of these Marines. His citation reads, The President of the United States, in the name of Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Hospital Corpsman 2nd Class George E. Whalen of the United States Navy Reserve, 
for service as set forth in the following citation. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, while serving with the 2nd Battalion, the 26th Marines, 5th Marine Division, during action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima in the Volcano Group on March 3, 1945, painfully wounded in the bitter action on February 26th, Wallen remained on the battlefield, advancing well forward to the front lines to aid a wounded Marine and carrying him back to safety despite a terrific concentration of fire. Tireless in his ministrations, he consistently disregarded all danger to attend to his fighting comrades as they fell under the devastating rain of shrapnel and bullets and rendered prompt assistance to various elements of his combat group as required. When an adjacent platoon suffered heavy casualties, he defied the continuous pounding of heavy mortars and deadly fire of enemy rifles to care for the wounded, working rapidly in an area swept by constant fire and treating 14 casualties before returning to his own platoon. Wounded again on the 2nd of March, he gallantly refused evacuation, moving out with his company the following day in a furious assault across 600 yards of open terrain and repeatedly rendering medical aid while exposed to the blasting fury of the powerful Japanese guns. Stout-hearted and indomitable, he persevered in his determined efforts as his unit waged fierce battle and, unable to walk after sustaining a third agonizing wound, resolutely crawled 50 yards to administer first aid to still another fallen fighter. By his dauntless fortitude and valor, Wallen served as a constant inspiration and contributed vitally to the high morale of his company during critical phases of this strategically important engagement. His heroic spirit of self-sacrifice in the face of overwhelming enemy fire upheld the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. Signed, Harry S. Truman. The picture of President Truman presenting the medal to George was on the front page of the New York Times magazine for October 14th. On October 12, 1945, the Standard Examiner read, City intends to pay special honors to Sailor. The City Commission today began making plans for observing George Edward Wallen Day as a tribute to a Utah sailor who was recently decorated by President Truman with the Congressional Medal of Honor in Washington. Pharmacist Mate Wallen received the action for heroism in battle beyond the line of regular duty by rendering aid to injured Marines on Iwo Jima when he himself was injured. Mayor David S. Romney made an official call upon the sailor and his family following their arrival Wednesday from Washington. Mayor Romney read from a letter received from Mark Ostad, announcer at radio station WWDC in Washington, D.C. The letter stated, I just wanted to report to you about something that struck me forcibly. Last Friday, I was fortunate enough to attend the Nimitz Day celebration in Washington's Mayflower Hotel and saw something which swelled my heart with pride, the pride of a fellow townsman. This boy, Wallen, has captured the fancy of all Washington. I wish you could have seen the biggest names in the country stand and applaud, as one when George Wallen and his comrades stood individually. Such men as Forrestal, Nimitz, King, Arnold, Marshall, Devereaux, and many others, and paid a rousing tribute to them. This morning we had him and his family in Sunday school and tried to pay him the respect we have for him. He is the most unassuming, modest fellow I think I have ever met. 
He is truly a credit to his hometown, his state, and his country. George was so busy that the city wasn't able to honor him until 1946. And on November 3rd of 1946, the paper read, Navy Hero to Head Parade November 11th as Grand Marshal. Georgie Wallen, holder of the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award bestowed by this nation in recognition of beyond the call of duty wartime service, will officiate as Grand Marshal at the Weber County All-Veterans Victory Parade on November 11th. The parade is for veterans of all wars, including women, who are urged to turn out to present the numerical might of their presence in Weber County. The event is also a welcome home parade for World War II GIs. George married Melba Holly from Slaterville on August 16, 1946, and they were the parents of five children. He worked for the rights of veterans and played a vital role in lobbying for the Veterans Cemetery at Camp Williams. He died on June 5, 2009 in Roy and is buried in Salt Lake City Lindquist Memorial Garden. And the George E. Wallen Veterans Home in Weber County was named in his honor and opened in January of 2010. Well, that is it for our stories on Iwo Jima. Next, we're going to move to Okinawa, where Weber County will take another huge hit of servicemen and sailors who died during that battle. I just wanted to say a quick thanks to all of those who have purchased um, the book, Weber County's Greatest Generation, 1943. I do have a few copies remaining before Christmas, and there's information available on my website, Weber County's Greatest Generation. Also, the podcast is available on my Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation, on, on Apple iTunes as well. So thanks for joining. <laughs>